You're listening to the Growth Exponential Podcast. I'm your host, Bradley Caro Cook. Today, I'm joined by Leslie Lubell, who is the program manager for HAMSA, helping Atlantans manage substance abuse, which is a program of Jewish Family and Career Services, whose mission is to provide support for individuals and families to achieve and live in recovery, breaking barriers of stigma and shame by offering addiction and recovery related services with the Jewish voice. Leslie, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, I'm super curious. I know I just shared the mission, but could you share with me at a high level in your own words about Hamza? Sure. So Hamza was created nine or 10 years ago through a grant to kind of address the specific needs of the Jewish community as it relates to drug and alcohol addiction. And what I mean by that is that the Jewish community seems to have kind of seems to be really impacted by stigma and shame, which ultimately really help keep people from finding the help that they need. And so that we wanted to open up the conversation and and make this a less scary thing to talk about. Over the years, the program has evolved. In the last few years, we really created a framework to try to address the things that we think are most important. I'll give you just the highlights is that we offer Narcan, which is an opioid overdose antidote. I always get tongue tied over that. We offer free Narcan and free Narcan training in the community. We also have an information referral service that helps people navigate the landscape of treatment because it's very confusing, very overwhelming, and littered with unethical options. We also provide opportunities for people to explore recovery with a Jewish voice. We do a million other things, but we don't have enough time to talk about all of them. So those are the highlights. That's great. And it's so important because I know shame is a key Jewish value in the yep. community, which has its pros and cons. But in this case, it's definitely a con. I was super curious about your background. So what is it that led you into the nonprofit space and particularly Hamsa? So I've always worked in what I think some people would call the helping profession. I was a special education teacher for about 16 years and worked in some of the Jewish preschool and public schools and private schools and did that for a long time. And really that felt like my calling at the time. I have always struggled with mental illness. It's something I'm very open about. I feel very lucky that I have a job where I actually get to talk about it. That has always been an issue for me as well as different kind of types of addictions over the years. And when I got into my early 40s, I found myself addicted to drugs and alcohol. Life kind of took a nosedive. And when I kind of recovered from my bottom, you know, had to figure out what to do next in life. And I was blessed, I don't know, by some accident of the universe to sort of stumble into this job that felt like it was custom crafted for me. It was a job posting from a Jewish jobs weekly listserv that I don't even remember signing up for that I had never opened. I looked in my mailbox. I think I had two years worth of these emails and I opened it one day at kind of out of desperation. Like, what am I going to do with myself? And here was this job description looking for somebody to be the information referral specialist for a program. They needed somebody who was good at relationship building, who was good at writing, who was good at, was connected to recovery in some way, who was plugged into the Jewish community. And I kind of checked off all of those boxes and called and, and left a very obnoxious message for somebody telling them why I was uniquely qualified for the job and that they should interview me. And uh, the rest is kind of history. Wow, what a powerful story. Thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that and tremendous respect for you for pulling yourself up and also the chutzpah of calling and (laughs) securing this position. So I'm wondering, what are some of the program goals and how do you measure success? 
So I think those have changed over the years and they've evolved. I think for a, a long time, it was really just about awareness and kind of opening up the conversation. And in the last few years, the focus since I joined it, the program was really to look at impact. How could we measure impact? What could we do that was really going to help move people towards recovery or keep them in recovery? And what has sort of evolved is that this information and referral service is really become probably the most robust piece of what we do. To be very clear, I am not a therapist. My coworker, Michelle Day, is not a therapist. We don't provide therapy. What we see ourselves as doing is providing sort of bookends to the process, that the front end, we can help people identify the right treatment options, modalities, providers based on their needs, based on their financial resources, and so on and so forth. And then when they come out of whatever treatment they went to, we can help them on the other side with securing aftercare, whatever that looks like, transitional housing, sober living, follow-up uh, therapists, support for the family, all those things. And what makes that measurable is that we know that in the United States, of the many millions of people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol, only about 10% of them get the help that they need. And that means one in 10 people get some sort of treatment for their addiction. And we know that treatment, whatever kind, is right for that person, exponentially increases the likelihood that they will get into and maintain recovery. And the aftercare component further increases that likelihood, right? So we look at how many people that we talk to actually engage in treatment, and we want that to be higher than 10%. And right now it's around 40%. So we already know that we're quadrupling the national average on the number of people that are able to engage in treatment. The other thing we measure is how many Narcan kits are we able to hand out and how many people are we able to train? Because what we know about Narcan, what we know about opioid overdoses is that more often than not, a reversal, which is when somebody administers Narcan to somebody who is experiencing an opioid overdose, reversals are performed by people who are with that person, either that they're using with or that they live with. It's more often than not those people than EMTs. People don't realize that. And so the more people we can put Narcan into the hands of, the more likely it is that they will be able to use it if and when they need it. And so and we have some other measurable things that we look at. What kind of people are reaching out to us? Is it family members? Is at individuals. And then we can also further kind of hone in on how we're going to reach people, where we're going to find them, because we know who kind of who we're talking to and who's coming to us and what they're looking for. That's remarkable. And I mean, I love how you also tie in Narcan or Naloxone into the treatment process. How do you provide that to individuals who have opioid addictions? So through our grant, which is through the Marcus Family Foundation, part of one kind of one of the missions, the goals of the grant came to us in the last few years was that we start making Narcan more readily available in the community. And so we buy it through the grant. We're able to get it at a low price. We have something in the state of Georgia called a standing order which is sort of like a prescription for the entire state. And that was established by two amazing women who started something called Georgia Overdose Prevention. And so when that was established, that meant anybody could get Narcan without a prescription, but it's still not easy to get because it's expensive. You can walk into any pharmacy and ask for Narcan. They don't always have it, they should, or some form of naloxone, Narcan is a brand name, and it's maybe $150 in the pharmacy. We get it for $75 for a package of two doses. And so through that grant, we're able to distribute that in the Jewish community Community. We've also been very, very lucky to partner with the Clinton Foundation on several Narcan trainings that are outside of the Jewish community. And so those people, those organizations are reimbursing us for the Narcan. We're just helping them to purchase it, but we're able to give these trainings. 
all over the place to not just put the Narcan in people's hands, but to increase awareness about what an overdose looks like, how it happens and who it happens to. Because part of that stigma is that this only happens to somebody who is you know, an IV heroin user living on the street. And that is not the case. Lots of people accidentally overdose if you mix alcohol with any type of opiate that increases the chance of overdose. People sometimes take too much of their medication, whatever. And right now during COVID, we're seeing exponential increases, unfortunately, of opioid overdoses. And most of them are related to fentanyl. And fentanyl is much stronger than the opiates that are found in heroin or prescription pills. And so we need people to know that and we need to educate them and put this in their hands. And that's how we're able to do it. I'm also wondering, like, how do people get access to fentanyl? So fentanyl is a synthetic analog of an opioid. And so unfortunately, it's so powerful. It was Fentanyl was created as kind of like an end-of-life drug, something to be used for palliative care or people who have really terrible pain that is completely unmanageable. And it's meant to be a time-released drug. Fentanyl is usually administered in a, in a patch or a lollipop or something like that. Fentanyl is so strong that it takes just a few grains of it to kind of do its job. And it's very easy to get it here from the countries that are producing it because it's so small and it's so easy to send. And when it's added to other drugs, it increases their potency, right? Unfortunately, people that are mixing drugs don't use a measuring cup and a scale. They don't know what they're, they just put it in there, right? And, and it also depends on who's using it. Somebody who is a new user or who hasn't been using for a long time, maybe they were in recovery, maybe they were in jail, maybe they were in rehab, whatever, and they use again and that fentanyl is so strong that it can really kill people instantly. It's also showing up in counterfeit pills so the, the pills that are so popular right now, unfortunately, with young people, especially benzodiazepines like Xanax and Valium and Oxycodones and Oxycontins that people know the names of, those pills can be produced and sold on the street and look exactly like a pill that you would get from a pharmacy. You can't tell the difference. And they're very often laced with fentanyl. And so that's where we often see deaths of young people who are really just experimenting and think it's no big deal to take a prescription pill and they end up taking one pill that kills them. I'm not trying to sound alarmist. These things are happening. They're happening all the time. They're happening in Georgia. They're happening in the Jewish community. They are happening. And that is why we have got to talk about this stuff um, so that people are aware. It's so important. I mean, it's completely new to me, and I'm glad that you elaborated on that. Now that you've shared some quantitative and some success and also the, the real issues that kids and also adults are facing in this world, can you share a specific success story with me of really an example of how Hamsa has made a difference? Yeah, I have a few. It's hard to pick one, but I'm going to pick one that actually, if people want to learn more about, they can actually go onto our website and watch a little video about his story. His name is, is Jacob, and it's really, it's an incredible story. His family reached out to us coming up on almost two and a half years ago, basically saying he had been struggling. This is a Jewish guy. I've been struggling with opiate addiction for years and years and years, in and out of rehabs, in and out of recovery, abstinence, what have you, um, that he had gotten in a car accident. He was in the hospital and they were kind of like, this is it. Like, we have to do something. And, you know, the family was concerned about how they were going to pay for it. They had really tapped out their resources over the years, which happens to a lot of families. They knew he needed something long-term and they didn't know how to find it. They didn't know how to get him to go. And, you know, long story short, we identified a program here in Atlanta that, and I think this is really 
indicative of, I think, what we're able to do for people is we have a relationship with this place. It's called No Longer Bound. And it's actually a faith-based program. It's a Christian program. But what they do is so phenomenal and it works and it's 12 months long and it's, they call it a regeneration program because they're really regenerating everything, right? About the, the person, their relationships, their self-esteem, their physical health. So I went to them and said, how can we make this work for a Jewish client? I know that what you have is what he needs, but he needs to feel comfortable there. And they were willing to work it out. They, they found ways for him to be able to incorporate his faith into the things that they were doing so that he didn't ever feel uncomfortable there. And, you know, long story short, um, when we filmed that video a year ago, he had 15 months um, in recovery from heroin addiction. He was um, working towards, uh, he had graduated from his program. He was working towards getting certified to be an addiction counselor. Here we are a year later and he's working in a treatment center and he is almost finished with that degree. And he is working with and mentoring and counseling other, other men that have, have been, you know, where he's been. And, you know, it's kind of a ripple effect that there's somebody sent me a letter once and said, it's a quote, I listen, I'm, I'm Jewish, but I'm not very good at the Jewish part. A quote from, I don't know, it was the Talmud or the Torah or something like that, that said, and when you save a life, you're not just saving one life, you're saving the whole world. And I think this is an example of that, that when you save a person, when Jacob is able to save himself, because that's what we did, we gave his family the tools to empower them to save themselves, he is then able to go on and share that with other people. And that ripple goes on and on and on. And so um, it's really a beautiful example of, of the ways we've been able to impact people. I'm so inspired. There's tears in my eyes. This is, I've chose. And I mean, especially how brave of Jacob to be willing to be on video and to work. He's, these it's a powerful out. video. He's amazing. He's a good guy. That's so great. So you're doing so much good for so many people. What are ways that our listeners can help you and Hamsa accomplish your goals? First, I want to make sure I say that you can reach us at one eight three three hamza H-A-M-S-A, helps, or go to our website at hamzahelps.org. And if you need help finding treatment or any kind of support around recovery for yourself or a loved one, you know, we want you to call us. Obviously, we want people to show up to our programs. We want people to, people to support us financially if they're able to. You know, nonprofit work is not free. We do it for free but we have to keep the lights on. And so when people are able to give us financial support, that's always very much appreciated. And we have an incredible opportunity for people to do that coming up. We are hosting David Sheff, who is the author of a very well-known book called Beautiful Boy that was turned into a film in 2018 with Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet kind of chronicling David's uh, journey terrifying journey with his son, Nick, um, in his addiction for many, many years and ultimately recovery. And David was already a, an award-winning journalist before he wrote this book. So he's going to be coming. We're going to have a free event on August the 20th at 7 p.m. that anybody can come to just register to get the Zoom link on our website. However, we also have an opportunity for people to have a really more intimate conversation with David directly in a small Q&A with only 20 people in a Zoom room where they will be able to, to talk to him and get some feedback from him. And so we have sort of some staggered prices for that. At $360, people will get a couple of uh, signed books in addition to being part of that conversation. And for $180, they can do it without the books. And all of those funds will go directly to Hamza. They do not go into our agency's general operating budget. They come to us. And what that enables us to do is to buy more Narcan, to bring in more experts, to spend more time helping people, and hopefully at some point, you know, to expand and to, to hire a case manager, to hire a dedicated therapist that works 
only with our clients. We would love to be able to do that. So, you know, people can join us for that or they can, uh, you know, we're always happy for people to make donations. And if people want to get involved and find ways to give back if they've been impacted, you know, reach out to us. If we've got a way for you to do that, we'll, we'll let you know. Sometimes we um, help connect people with other folks that have been through what they've been through just to talk to them about what it's like to go to treatment or to go to a support meeting or for families that are looking um, for others that have been through what they've been through. So if you want to contribute in that way, you can as well. And I do want to also mention we are starting a new group for parents of children, whether they're young children or adult children who have struggled with or are struggling with addiction. And that's going to start in September. So lots of ways for people to come and be a part of what we're doing. That's so inspiring. And I'm, I'm happy to, to support what y'all are doing. If you, uh, Thank you send me a link after this call. So please Thank do you. tell me, like, how do people find you? We do a lot of social media. We're pretty active on Facebook and we try to share in all the Jewish groups there. We promote ourselves through the synagogues, through the Atlanta Jewish Times. We try to get the word out, but word of mouth helps us too. A lot of rabbis refer to us. People can find us on Facebook, Hamza Helps on Facebook. They can find us on our website, hamzahelps.org. They can find us on the JFNCS website, jfcsatl.org. They can call us at 1-833-HAMZA-HELPS. Lots of places to find us, but we're always trying to reach more people. So you've got ideas for how we can do that. We're, we're always listening. That's awesome. We should definitely connect about that. Well, yeah. I want to thank you so much for joining us for the Growth Exponential podcast today. And thank you also, so much for the opportunity. Yeah, for sure. And also, I want to wish you tremendous success in all of your life-saving endeavors. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Growth Exponential podcast. If you know an executive director or nonprofit professional that you think I should interview, shoot me an email at bradley at growthexponential.org.